And as we open this book again, uh, and if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that pew Bible in the pew rack in front of you. You can find our passage on page 987. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, verses 6 through 13. And we come to really what is kind of the heart and central uh, part of the the letter. Uh, We're going to find out that as we learned last week, Paul has sent Timothy, young Timothy, to minister to the church in Thessalonica. The reason why is, again, Paul can't go back. He's been thrown out of the city and probably warned or threatened that if he comes back, not only would he be harmed, but his missionary team as well, and the people that would uh, give him uh, an opportunity to preach. And so Paul knows if I go back, it's going to cause all kinds of great turmoil for those whom I love. And so Paul finds himself at the writing of this letter in the city of Corinth, some 300 to 400 miles away from the city of Thessalonica. Corinth was southwest of of Thessalonica, and no phones, no ability to communicate. Paul sends Timothy to go see how the Thessalonian church was doing. And as we've been studying this text, there are three truths for those that are maybe new to where uh, we're at in this letter that I want you to be aware of. We have been looking at this letter since the beginning of the year, and three truths that we've come to know. Number one, Paul absolutely adores the people of the Thessalonian church. Though he didn't spend a lot of time with them, though his departure was abrupt, Paul just throws out all kinds of accolades and uh, sentimental uh, thoughts of the love he has for these people. He cares about them deeply. And what we're going to learn today is the Thessalonians care deeply about Paul and his team. The second thing that we've learned in, in this study that Thessalonians reminds us as a church about is that one of the things that we can know will happen in life is that afflictions and hardships are going to come. Last week we learned that Paul says that we are destined to issues and times of affliction, trouble, and pain. And if you've lived life for any amount of time, you know that there are some great times in life. But as you grow older, you know that with the great times also come difficult times, trials and tribulations. And we were reminded last week that we can take solace in the fact that we know that God is the God who is sovereign over trials and tribulations and temptation. And he's the one that will walk us through uh, those fiery trials that we face. The final thing that Paul tells us uh, in this letter is that he tells us that um, a group of people who are sold out for the Lord can do great things. You see, uh, this church in Thessalonica, this Thessalonian church, was a church made of a group of nobodies. I want you to know, unlike many other churches uh, that had names of people all throughout the letter, this guy's doing this and this guy's doing that, and we're so blessed to have this lady in our church, nowhere in the letters of the Thessalonians do you see any uh, regard given to a superstar in the faith. And yet this church, Paul says, this church of ordinary nobodies, people like you and me, you know, people that that aren't all that popular, none of them are running for president, none of that, that this group of people, working class people, not only changed the city of Thessalonica, but the Bible says that they changed all of Greece with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so with those three things in mind, what a great book to open up to. What a great book to study. What a great model for what Village Bible Church should be. I, it is my prayer that I would be like the Thessalonians. It's my prayer that our church would be like the Thessalonians who did great things for God, even though in the world's estimation they were pretty small as we are. So let's turn to our Bibles this morning, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 
And let me read for us our text that's before us, and we'll be camping out here for the rest of the time, so find your place and follow along. But here's what Paul tells Timothy. He says, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see, your, see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Let's pray. Father God, as we come again to this book and to this letter, we are reminded of your goodness to us. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us principles and truths that we can live by, just as the Thessalonians needed to Um, have guidance and direction, so we do as well. So Lord, I pray that the text before us and the message that is before us would impact our hearts. It would transform who we are so that we may leave this place loving people more like you, living more like you, and serving in a way that would honor you in all that we say and do. In Christ's name we pray, amen. If you want to follow along, you can grab the bulletin insert there. But I want to deal with uh, our, our passage this morning under the heading, Satisfaction Guaranteed. You know, we live in a world where everything we buy, all that we purchase, whether it's something we consume or something we wear, something we use uh, in daily life or something that's used only a fraction of the time, almost everything that we have in our possession at some point or another had a sticker like the one that's on the screen where there was 100% satisfaction guaranteed. It's a reminder that the person that has made the product is willing to stand behind the product in such a way that if you, the customer, are not fully satisfied, that you can return the product you bought and you'll get 100% of your money back. Now, as I studied this, you know, as a preacher, you want to find out, you're going to use an illustration, where does this all come from? I want you to know that the earliest use of the 100% satisfaction guaranteed was around the turn of the last century, and it started with Sears Roebuck catalogs. If you remember, some of you lived that long ago, others of you don't know, but you used to shop in what was old school Amazon. A big catalog would come in the mail of the thousands upon thousands of items that you could buy from Sears Roebuck. And then through the mail, it would come uh, to you, you know, in about the same time as Amazon. About two months, you would receive your stuff. And a part of it, and all of these things, because for the first time, shoppers were no longer looking in person at the stuff they were buying. For the first time in their life, they were going to have to take the word of the advertiser that what they were buying was actually worth all the money they were spending. And so this little label was put on there. But the problem was, as many merchants weren't living behind 
the statement. Well, they said if you send it back, all kinds of issues would come in the process of getting your money back. And so the federal government got involved. And it began with a, a, a federal case that came before a federal court. It had worked its way through the circuit court, worked its way through the appellate court, and it had a jury court um, decide the issue of the satisfaction guaranteed. It was about 100 years ago, and it was a court case that involved a, a recently widowed woman and a sculptor. You see, the widow had desired in memorial or in memory of, of her uh, recently deceased husband that she would have a sculpture, a bust made of him. She wanted to place it in her foyer so that whenever anybody came over, they would know that she had a husband and that they would be able to see his likeness in the sculpture. So the sculptor did the work. And he was a very well-known sculptor. And he did a phenomenal job. In fact, in the legal rendering, the jury said that when you looked at the sculpture and each of the pictures that they had before them of the husband, it was a perfect likeness. But the jury decided to go with her. And the reason was, was she was the subjective um, judge of the work that was done. The man would have to repay all the money that he spent and all the money that, that he uh, had received from the woman. She got to keep the work, but she got to keep the money as well. The reason why was that satisfaction was found to be in the eye of the beholder. And here, as we turn to 1 Thessalonians, we can look at the scriptures and we can see that there's a satisfaction in Paul's life. He speaks, he says, oh, how we can thank the Lord for the joy that we feel for you. Paul has a joy, and we know that Paul is an apostle of joy. He writes a whole letter to the church at Philippi, just an epistle of joy, of how much joy he has in his heart. But here's the problem. For many of us, we want the joy that Paul has. Some of you are sitting here this morning and you're struggling with joy. And you're saying, I want someone to guarantee. I want someone, I want God, in fact, to put a, to put a label on my life and say, Tim, you're going to have satisfaction. You're going to find joy. You're going to find contentment. If you're not, you can trade in your life and you can get a new one. Well, sadly, that doesn't happen as much as we may want it to. And so what we see is Paul is filled with joy. And right away we say, well, how does Paul have joy? Well, I can tell you that his joy is not found in everything going well for him. Notice in the text before us, he says in verse 7, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction. Now let's stop there for a moment. I want you to recognize this morning that Paul's joy is found not when everything was going well, but in affliction and distress. He was struggling. Paul is, is in Corinth, and, and, and in Corinth, he writes to the church at Corinth that he comes in weakness and with a lack of strength, with fear and trembling. He was a broken man, so how could this man, Paul, write that he's filled with joy, that he's filled with satisfaction? I'm going to show you in our text this morning that you can find joy, that you can find satisfaction even when things in your life aren't going the way 
you want to. And here's the number one reason why, and then we'll build around it. The reason why Paul could find joy amidst great affliction and struggles is because he knew Jesus. I was reminded of a song that I remember as a teenager when I was putting together my sermon. This song kept coming up into my my ears, the chorus of it did, and, and I went and I looked at the words, and I had no real remembrance of what the verses shared. But Stephen Curtis Chapman in the mid-90s, I know that ages me, by the way, but, but in the mid-90s, he wrote a song called What Kind of Joy? And he talks about the Apostle Paul in the midst of it. He says this, anybody in their right mind would have given up their preaching and headed for home. They had been warned a hundred times But something inside them keeps giving them hope. And just when you think they'd be crying, instead of tears, there's joy in their eyes. He goes on in verse 2, speaking of Paul, he says, Anybody else with his pain would want to shake his fist at heaven and give up the fight. Because trouble had been Paul's middle name ever since he had been captured by God's blinding light. But just when Paul's hope should be dying... If you listen, you'll hear him singing a song, and this is how the chorus goes. What kind of joy is this that counts it a blessing to suffer? What kind of joy is this that gives the prisoner his song? What kind of joy can stare death in the face and see it as sweet victory? This is a joy of a soul that's been forgiven and set free. You see, we can experience joy. We can experience satisfaction even in this world of trouble. And Paul tells us how. Notice three things this morning. My first two points are the the majority of my message. I will have you out before kickoff, by the way. So we've got plenty of time. But here's what I want you to know. You can find satisfaction today even when trials and tribulations come. First of all, first of all, by rejoicing in the good news of what God is doing and the good news of what God is doing in the life of others. Notice verse 6 for a moment. We are told that now Timothy has come back to the Apostle Paul. Notice the phrase says, but now that Timothy has come back to us from you, he has brought us the good news of your faith and love. The good news Now, I can imagine for a moment, imagine with me, Paul, remember, he's anxious, he's concerned about this church that he got up and left abruptly. He had come to know them and built relationships with them. They had responded to his preaching. They were living in obedience. They had turned from their idols, turned away from sexual immorality and all other kinds of sin, and they now were living for Christ. And Paul had this warm uh, uh, remembrance of them. He longed to see them, to see them face to face. And he had sent Timothy. And Timothy's job was to go and exhort and, and establish the church. Now, Timothy's been gone for some months now. And Paul's mind must be racing. I wonder what's going on. Is Timothy running into the same persecution we did? Are the Thessalonians living the life that, that they were called to in Christ Jesus? Had they turned back to their idols? Had they fallen prey to heresy? I wonder what's going on. If I could only know what's going on. And then all of a sudden the door opens up and there's young Timothy and he's out of breath. And he comes into the room and he says, Paul, Paul, I've got great news. The Thessalonians are doing great. 
they're still living in light of the truth that you articulated. They're living for the gospel. They've held fast to the, the truth that you articulated. They're not falling to the idols. They're not caving to the persecution around them. They are doing a great job. Notice what Paul says about this interaction. He says literally that Timothy has brought us, in the Greek the phrase is the euangelion. The euangelion, literally the gospel. When we talk about someone being saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ, we would say it is the euangelion of Jesus Christ. What Paul is saying is, is they Uh, Timothy has brought from the Thessalonians the gospel of their faith and love. Now what he's not saying is that there's a new gospel. What he's not saying is that there's a different gospel. What he's using is a play on words to tell the Thessalonians as they read this letter when they receive it, that their faith is a gospel, is a good news to the good news of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? That what they're living, how they're believing, how they're walking with their God, is a gospel, is a testimony of good news to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a wonderful advertisement to what the good news of Jesus Christ can and will do in the lives of people. Where's this good news coming from? Paul says that he hears that this good news is seen in the word faith and love. John Calvin, the great reformer, said this in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians. In these two words of faith and love, Paul states concisely the sum total of all godliness. He goes on and he says, all who aim at this double mark in life are beyond the danger of error. For the entirety of their lives. What he's saying is, listen, if you can get faith down and you can get love down, things are going to go well in your experience with Jesus Christ. Now I stop and I do a sermon within a sermon. And my sermon within the sermon, listen, is to parents, my peers. And it's a truth that I've been wrestling with in this new year. You see, as parents, and as grandparents especially as well, okay, When our kids are growing, we are concerned really about three things. Or at least that's what we tell others we're concerned about. And let me walk down them with you. We're worried about academics, we're worried about athletics, and we're worried about their involvement in the arts. Right? How's Johnny doing? Well, Johnny's on the honor roll. He's doing great in school. The teachers say he's right on track. And he's also on the basketball team. And he's scoring some baskets, and he loves being a part of the team, and and we're running around like crazy from practice to practice, and we're having a great time. And he's picked up the trumpet, and he's playing it great. It was a little rough there at the beginning. It sounded like an animal was dying, a horrific death, but he's really come along. And he went from third chair to second chair, and now he's playing all the solos. He's in the first chair seat. Everything's going great there. And we do that. We put it on, listen, we put it on our bumper stickers. My kid's an honor student. We, we make sure that uh, we take pictures and throw it all over Facebook that they won in the tournament. We do it. You do it. I do it. It's not a sin. Listen, it's wonderful. It's a great joy of parenting. But let me remind all of us parents of this truth. At the end of the day, none of that matters. None of it matters. Oh, it may get you into a better college. 
It may get you some press in the newspaper. It may even fill your life with all kinds of, of uh, uh, old stories of what you did when you were young and slender and athletic. I'm there, okay? Fill your, your, your time with that. You can pull out, as, as I long to do with my children, look at all the things that the Beacon News used to say about your old man. And they look at these pieces of paper and say, what's that? It's this newspaper. It's how we used to get our news, by the way. All of that, listen to me, is secondary. Now, when I say secondary, what I don't mean is it's sinful. Listen, what I'm saying is, is it's secondary, that there's something more important, and listen what it is. It is your child's faith and love. So let me ask a question, a question that Amanda and I are asking each and every day that we parent. It's great that our kids are involved in all these things. It's great that, that the kids bring home good report cards, at least in your family, right? It's good that they do that. It's good that, that, that they're involved in different things. But at the end of the day, what I'm going to be held accountable for as a father is the same thing that Paul said he was going to be held accountable for the Thessalonian church, their faith and their love. Now, why their faith and love? Why would Calvin say it's the sum total of all godliness? Here's the reason why. Write this down. Faith defines, our faith defines our relationship with God. And so as parents, let's ask the question this morning, are our kids a faithful and faith-filled follower of Jesus Christ? Because that's what really is going to matter, right? That on the day of judgment, listen to me. I will have not prepared my children for the day of judgment if little Luke gets up and says when he sees Jesus, but I was the best soccer player on my team, God. That's why I should be able to come into your glory. Or I made student council. Or I, I was the valedictorian at my school. I'm going to assure you that probably none of the Bedals will say that, so that just doesn't work. But if we come up with these secondary reasons on why we should be brought into glory, we have failed our children, here's what God is going to want to know. Listen to me. What did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? What did you do? And if you are a parent that is not moving your child to that place, listen, if you're a parent that the only Jesus that they see in your life is you yelling them into the car and telling them to put a smiley face on so we can go to church one day a week and then the rest of the week we don't see Jesus at all, that they don't see you in the word, that they don't see you praying, they don't see you with God's people, if that's the kind of faith and you have failed your child in the most important thing, faith. How about love? Faith tells us about our relationship with God. Listen, love tells us about our relationship with others. So <clears throat> the first <clears throat> relationship that you've got to get right, help your kids get right, is their relationship with God. Each and every day, teaching them on the road, when they're sitting down, when they're getting up, wherever you may be, teaching them about God and his desire to be in a relationship with them. But then, we've got the vertical relationship done. What about the horizontal? How do you treat others? A parent's job is to, treat their, to teach their children how to treat others, how to care for others. It begins in the home. You teach your children, and this is a difficult one. I get it. I was in a family with three boys. How to love their siblings. What it means to show sacrifice and concern and care about those other ones around them. What it means to love their mom and their dad. 
their grandparents to show the respect that family members are due? What about those who we call our friends? How do they show love and concern for their friends? How do they minister to them? How do they encourage their friends? How is it that their friends are built up in the time when they're with your child? How do your friends do with acquaintances? How do they do with people that they barely know? Do they build relationships? Do they try to get into the lives of people in positive and encouraging ways? How about strangers? How do your children deal with people of different ethnicities? How do your children view those who are down and out? How do your children deal with people that suffer from handicaps and other dilemmas? You see, we need to teach our children, as Paul told Timothy, to teach the Thessalonians not only their faith, but their love. Listen, you can't have one and not the other, right? It's like love and marriage. You can't have faith and love and not have love. You can't have love and not have faith. Why? Because love comes from God. And everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. And so we have to give this one-two punch, faith and love, faith and love, faith and love, always pivoting back to, I'm, son, I'm glad you're doing great in basketball, but how is your faith? How are you loving your teammates? How are you caring for those that are around you? Paul says that if we are going to teach anyone, whether it's the church that we're leading, whether it's the family in our home that we have been given charge over, how do we give them and teach them satisfaction when life throws you a bunch of curveballs? By establishing and exhorting them in faith and love. So Paul moves on and he says, all right, you're doing a great work. Your faith and your love is commendable. And then he shares something about the good news that the others were sharing. Paul receives the word he's wanting to hear. Notice in verse 6. He says, you remember us kindly. What he's saying there, listen, it, it is good for us to know, to take solace in the fact that others care about you. Write that down. That others care about you. Paul is overjoyed by the knowledge that others are concerned about him. We're getting to the heart of where Paul is at. Paul is broken down. He's, he's hurting. He's been beaten down by incessant persecution, and his heart is incredibly warmed, incredibly warmed by this idea that there are people out there that care, that are concerned about them. I, I don't know any personality in, in our personality scale that doesn't like to know that people are concerned for them. Yesterday, um, my brother and his wife and Amanda and I took my parents out uh, for dinner. We do it usually around the holidays, but holidays were pretty busy this year for everyone, and so we moved it back, and we celebrated my mom's birthday, which happened this last week, and we were together sharing a meal in a restaurant, and my mom leaned over at one point in the dinner, and she put her arm around me. I'm 39 years old. You don't expect a mom to do this, right? Of course you expect your mom to do this. She puts her arm around me, and she says, son, I'm concerned about you. You look tired. And then she says, with all joy and gladness in her heart, I think you've gained a couple pounds. <laughs> she said, that may be causing your tiredness. I said, Mom, I'm exhausted. She says, well, eat better. And uh, <laughs> I love my mom. Eat better 
and get some sleep, okay? So I had a salad last night, praise God, right? Okay, we're at a steakhouse and I eat a salad, okay? But I wanted my mom to love me and not to yell at me, so I did that. But let me tell you something. At 39 years of age, my heart was incredibly warmed. Here's why. There's a woman who cares about me, who's uniquely concerned about me. I, I'll tell you what, and I'm, listen, I'm not a mama's boy. Any stretch of the imagination, my mom would tell you that. But it warms this rugged man's heart. There's a, a lady that loves me and cares about me. Can I tell you, every one of us needs someone in our life like that? Now let me tell you, Jesus can do that. But Jesus says that it's not enough for us to know the love of Christ but that we must know the love of Christ as it is exhibited in the life of human beings around us. And so we need people in our lives that are caring for us and loving on us. And and so what the church is doing here all the time is finding ways for you to know that you're cared about. Come hang out with us. Come live life together with us. Listen, if you think that what we're doing is just setting up programs like a community center, then you have diminished the pastoral work into being a cruise director. Our heart's desire is that there will be nobody in this place that feels isolated. And so we try to find in as many ways as possible, creative ways to pull as many people in as possible. Not so that we can just experience events, but that we can share common experiences. So listen, men, you're feeling isolated? Come to the men's conference where a group of us are going to go and we're going to hear from God's word and we're going to engage with one another in real fellowship, in real dialogue and have a great time along the way. You looking for times or opportunities to minute? We have a movie night. You see, I know a lot of you, man, when, when our staff gets up here and talks about announcements, they say, can we get on to the important stuff? That is the important stuff. Those are what we call the on-ramps to real fellowship and identity in this body of Christ. Why do we do it? Because we want you to know we care about you. There are people that care about you as, as Paul did. Now here's the problem. Like I said, my first point's a long one, so just stick with it. Here's the problem. In our world today, relationships have become optional. I, I was watching, I told the first service this, I watch C-SPAN, so I can say I watch C-SPAN, so I sound important. So I was watching C-SPAN not too long ago, and it was an a interview at the press club of Washington, D.C., and Mark Zuckerberg, the multi, 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 multi-billionaire, I believe now, because of the stock market crash of Amazon, that, that Mark Zuckerberg is the richest man in the United States, and he was being interviewed. What made him a billionaire? He started a website called Facebook. And so there was conversation about the impact that Facebook has had on us as a society. And what Mark Zuckerberg said was that when they were putting together Facebook on the campus of Harvard University, the guys were talking and they knew that what they had before them was something that would revolutionize relationships. And listen to me, they were prophets. They were absolutely right, right? Millions upon millions, hundreds of millions of people are subscribers to their website, interacting with people. To which Zuckerberg looked down, and I wish I could have taped it and put it on the screen for you. He said, we knew we were going to revolutionize relationships. Then he put his head down. And he looked back up after a pause, and he said, we just wish it wouldn't have been like this. And what he then said was that what they hoped would happen is that deeper relationships would take place. 
To which one of the reporters asked the question, of your close group of friends on Facebook, they went onto Zuckerberg's Facebook page, and they looked, and he had identified uh, about 150 close friends. And they, he asked a couple questions about particular friends to which Zuckerberg said, I can't answer you about who those people are. The creator of Facebook, who created a website so that it would encourage relationships, doesn't even know the people that are in his closest group of friends. But here's what Facebook tells me. Facebook tells me that I'm loved because, I, just so you know, I checked this morning, I am nearly to a thousand friends. Okay? I got a thousand friends. I don't know most of them. I think I remember them. At some point we went to school or we ran into one another, but we're friends. And we've redefined this term friendship, this term relationship. Now listen to me. Listen. Pastor's got a Facebook account. A thousand friends. Okay? Doesn't mean it's sinful. But what I'm saying is we've got to recognize the societal pull that's going on. And so we think that when we read through the feed, listen, these short little tidbits about their life, that we are having a relationship with people. We're not. We're reading through headlines of people that many of them we have no relationship at all. And so and what happens is we become a bit voyeuristic where we're looking into the lives of people that we have some level of acquaintance with but no real desire to deepen any relationship with them. I read an article two weeks ago and it talked about the generation of children that are growing up right now. And it talked about the generation and they called it generation isolation. And this generation, they say, of young people, because of technology, are growing up without knowing what real relationships are like. For many of us, we know what it means to have a close friend that walked through the ups and downs of our childhood. The article said the majority of student, young, young students in the elementary school were surveyed asking the question, do you see a need for friends? And the response in their interviews was the following. Friends are needed when you need something from them. And so what they meant was, is and notice how our activities are. We bus our kids to and fro to activities, right? And the activities that they're a part of are usually team things, right? Things that they are needing a team to participate. My children are involved in soccer and basketball. They cannot play basketball and soccer by themselves. So they need people with them. And that's the only thing that they recognize, that generation, of what friendship is. It is, I need people around me. When I need them, they are welcomed into my life because I, I want to play on a team. I want to win the championship of the five-on-five -five basketball tournament. So I need four other people. Those become my friends. Herein lies the problem. What will happen when that generation grows up? And they see the people around them only as needed in selfish ways. I need a spouse for selfish reasons. I need a church for selfish reasons. I need relationships for selfish reasons. Now you say, well, here's the reason why. And, and the studies show it. The reason why our children seem to think that they don't need personal contact with others is because they are glued to devices. 
listen to me, and, and I'm being completely honest here. Read any study. Read what's going on with sociologists in the nation of Japan. Did you know Japan will pay you to get married? They'll pay you great amount of money. And listen, the men of Japan say, we have no need for women. We have our computers. We have no need. So the national government of Japan is saying, we'll pay you thousands upon thousands of dollars. Just get married to somebody. Our birth rate is dropping. It's declining. And they're saying, we don't need relationships. We have technology. We have TV. We have the internet. We have all that we need. That's all the companionship I need. And civilizations are shriveling up as a result of the lack of relationships. Where did that begin? Let me tell you. You can blame the generation, but back in the Mayberry days that I grew up in, what we call the mid-90s, you know some of you are laughing about that. The home I grew up in was nothing to be desired. Nice house, we didn't have a lot going on. My mom didn't have the fine china or anything like that, but I can tell you, I can't count the amount of people that my parents brought into that home on a weekly basis. You see, my parents' house was a place of hospitality. And, and, and I know it's alien for a lot of us, but, but every night we would sit around a thing called a table and share a meal. And at that meal, we would sit and we would talk about our days and talk about what's going on. And, and there would be some admonishing that would take place. And there would be encouragement that would be there. Around that ta table, there was relationships. And listen, we live in a time, listen to me, and I am as much to blame as it is you are. We live in mansions compared to our forefathers. Beautiful homes with all the bells and whistles of everything we would need to throw party upon party upon party. And our houses, instead of being bastions of hospitality, have become islands of isolation. And so our children, what do they see? They see you having a relationship with the thing that's attached to the wall. With the remote in your hand, having relationships with people you've never met and never will. Listen to me, there's no need for reality TV if you're involved in relationships. Does that make sense? We have to watch people have relationships because we're not having them in our own lives. And so what Paul is saying is, listen, the Christian life is a life where you know others care about you. And if you don't have people in your life that you know today people are caring about you, then get involved in a local church and pour yourself as difficult as your personality may make that to be, do it because God says it's good. Pour yourself into it. I know it means transparency. I know it means sacrifice of time. But God wants you to experience amidst times of great affliction and sorrow as Paul did, to know but there are people that care about me. And I will tell you, there are. There are. Notice the second thing. Paul goes on and he says there's people that are counting on you. Paul is reminded of this truth and he reminds the Thessalonians. Notice he says in verse 10, he says, we desire to see you at the end of the verse face to face. We want to see you. And we want to supply what is lacking in your faith. What Paul is saying there is Paul saw his job in his relationship with these people as one who is helping complete the work that God was doing in their life. That Paul recognized that they needed him to get the most out of God. 
Now that sounds weird, right? Because we believe in a private and personal relationship with Jesus. And we have no other mediator between God and man but Jesus Christ. That is correct. But God has put us in relationship with people. He's established the church for us as believers to gather together as people to count on one another. Which begs the question this morning. Who is counting on you to supply what is lacking in their life? As parents, again, I pivot to our children. They need you in their life. Not just to pay the bills, not to put clothes on their back and food in their bellies, but to grow them in a way that would honor God. But how about in the other relationships of life? Who is counting on you? Who needs you in their life? On Friday night, a man from this church pulled John Pilkington and I aside and said, I want to thank you for being a Paul in my life. That encouraged my heart. Not because I think I'm doing anything great. In some ways, I sat there and said, you know, what have I done? But it's good to know that people are counting on you. So as you go to work tomorrow, look around and ask the question, who needs encouragement? Who's counting on you to bring the gospel to you? Who's going to come and and in the time of need and sorrow going to put their arm around that individual and love on them? Who's going to be the one person in the toll booth aisle that's going to say, you know what, God bless you. I'm going to pray for you as you hand them the money. Who's going to encourage that individual in the checkout line? People are counting on you. C.S. Lewis in his great book, The Four Loves, speaks of a relationship that he had with two other friends. And he talked about all the good that was going on in that three amigo friendship. And then Charles, one of the three, dies. And he says, not only did Charles die, but a little part of me and my friend Bob died with Charles. And he goes on as C.S. Lewis does, and he says, because when Charles died, that bit of Charles that was able to draw me out is no longer there. The way Charles would tell a joke and and Bob would laugh is no longer there. The way Charles would talk about God and help us understand God is no longer there. We need Charles in our life because Charles is what brought out the best in the other two. You see, you may think that I'm not a pastor and I'm I'm not gifted in this way or that way. What good can I do? Why would people count on me? Because you have a part of God in your life that nobody else does. And you can speak about God and you can show God in a way that nobody else can. And people are counting on you to do that. Paul says we're here to supply what is lacking in your heart. How do you find satisfaction? You rejoice in the good news of others. In the good news of what God is doing. Second point will be shorter. Third point will be quick. We need to rely on the gift of prayer. Paul says in verse 10, As we pray, as we pray, Paul knew there was little that he could do for the church. He's now in Corinth, some 400 miles southwest of Thessalonica. He has little contact. His ministry with them has come to a complete standstill. He reminds us that while he's physically gone, there's something he can be doing. He can pray. What a great reminder for our senior saints that are here. We're blessed to have so many 
elderly individuals within our church, and I know that one of the things they will always say is, Pastor, I wish I could do more. Pastor, I wish I could serve more. Pastor, I'm just telling you, it's, I'm tired. As I get older, it, it becomes more and more difficult to be able to do all the things that I once did for the church. I was reminded of this truth on Friday at our annual meeting, a great time of blessing as Darren shared earlier. And one of our oldest members of the church, Don Rudd, he's not in this service, he was in the first one, so I can say a little more to this. Listen to me. Don says it takes all of their strength to make it to church, to put clothes on and get to church. You know you're old when a simple task like that takes all your strength. So you know what Don and Eunice are doing now? They've eaten a little soup and they're resting because it took all of what they had to be at church. That dear man got up at our annual meeting and he says, I can't do much for this church and so this is what I do. Eunice and I pray. We pray. We pray for you. We pray for what's going on. I can assure you that before they got up this morning, or before they got to church this morning, they do what they always tell me they do. They pray for the big guy to preach the word. What a testimony. A testimony that when we have no other answer, when we don't know what else to do, we can pray. Now, Paul tells us a couple things about prayer that I think is important that we realize. Look at the text. Paul says in verse 10. That the prayer, I'm sorry, it's not in verse 10. I'm, uh, yes, it is. Uh, yes, it is. Verse 10. I was getting lost here. Verse 10. That they prayed most earnestly night and day. Let's look at the phrase night and day first. What Paul is not saying is be like the Muslims who at a certain hour of the day pray. But what he's saying is, is that we live in a habitual state of prayer. So listen to me. What Paul is saying is continually always be praying for one another. He's going to say this also later in our text. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, he's going to say, pray without ceasing. You got it. And so what he's saying is, I'm praying without ceasing. And so listen to me. In your comings and goings, in your driving, in your going to the grocery store, in your passing periods at school, be in a spirit of prayer. As you see someone, pray for them. If you know what's going on in their life, lift them up. When you see them, as you read on that sinful site that pastor said, Facebook, pray for them. Be in a spirit of prayer, whether you know them or you don't. Pray. Notice second, he says to earnestly pray. Let me dig deep in the Greek. What that means, to earnestly do something, is to do that prayer as if it actually is going to happen. Oh, we don't pray like that, do we? We don't pray as if we believe that what we're praying is actually going to come true, right? Paul says, I pray, and the things I'm praying, I'm believing that they're going to take place because I believe in a God who does great work through prayer. Notice he finally says the pattern of prayer. What should we be praying about? Write these things, three things down. If there's been a question that has been brought to me as a pastor or a concern, it's been this. Pastor, I want to pray. I have a desire to pray, but every time I pray, I don't know what to pray about, okay? And so if you're struggling with that today, Paul gives us not the only three things, but three things that maybe we don't think about when we pray for, uh, in our times of prayer. Number one, 
Paul says that when we come to a time of prayer, in verse 9, he says, thank God for what he has done. Notice verse 9. For what thanksgiving can we give in return to God for you? What thanksgiving? Amidst trials and tribulations and troubles that Paul faced, he was truly thankful. Here's why. Because the old adage is true. We don't know what we've got until it's gone. And so trials take away things in our lives. Troubles and calamity, they will steal things from our lives. And then we start praying. That's why trials bring us close to God. Because when things are going well, who needs God? When a bad diagnosis comes, when bad news comes, when financial calamity hits us, we start praying. And we should be reminded in those moments of the good that God is doing. Listen to me. You could fill your calendar in prayer for all the things that God has given to us. Thank you, God, for my life. Thank you, God, for breath. Thank you, God, for water. Thank you, God, for clothing. Thank you, God, for food. Thank you, God, for my wife. Thank you, God, for my children. Thank you, God, for my home. Thank you, God, for uh, the vehicles that I drive. Thank you, God, for a job. Thank you, God, for a loving family. Thank you. I mean, I can keep going. I've barely gotten out of the Bedal house. We have so much to be thankful for. We are told by the prophet Jeremiah that God's mercies are new every morning. So God puts on the menu every morning of our lives a myriad of things for us to be thankful about. Spend some time in prayer giving thanks to God. Number two, think about the lives of others. Verse nine, for all the joy we feel for your sake before our God. That phrase, for your sake, is a very important word. Something that I've learned about prayer that I never knew before. Literally, it could be translated We are praying for you as if it was me. We're putting ourselves in your shoes, what Paul is saying. Have you prayed for others as they would pray for themselves? Listen, as a pastor and as a father and as a husband, I pray selfish prayers. Lord, I pray that the boys will do well. Why? Because that reflects good on me. Lord, I pray that the church would do well. Why? Because that reflects well on me as a pastor. Lord, I pray that uh, my marriage would be well. Why? Because then people will think I'm a great husband. I pray a lot of selfish prayers. But have I ever prayed a prayer from my son's point of view? Father God, I pray that my boys would not be hindered because they have a father at times who's hypocritical and capricious, who's inconsistent. Father, I pray for for Amanda that she would would, uh, be able to see your glory and grace in a husband who at times is neglectful. Father, I pray for my church that they would be a church that honors you and strives to seek after you with a knucklehead like me as their pastor. Putting yourself in the shoes of that individual, number one, allows you, listen, to pray for your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you. And to pray for those you love in a way you never thought you could before. Think about the lives of others. And finally, trust them with your plans. Paul says, may God direct our way to you. He hears from Timothy that things are going well. And it would be understandable for Paul to think, man, I want to be there. I want to get to Thessalonica. Man, great things are happening. I want to be there. And notice after verse 11, he starts complaining. Paul says, listen, God, I blame you for my circumstances. 
Thessalonians, do you understand the victim that I am, the hardships that I have, how bad my life is? Let me bellyache for you. I've been bellyaching night and day. I can't stand this life. I deserve a better life. Notice all of that. Wait a minute, that's not in the text. Lord, I get that. Oh, my bad, that's me. That's what I do when trouble comes. That's what I do when my schedule uh, is changed by God. You say, well, I haven't heard you say that, Tim. Well, I'm smarter than that. I just say it in my heart. I think those things. Paul says, you know what? Listen, life is hard. At times, I'm at the breaking point. But I know I have a God. Notice a couple things about this. He uses the word may. May God direct our way. May, not should, not would, but may. means his hands are open. Are you ready tomorrow to open your hands and say, Lord, direct my ways? Wherever you want me to go, if you want me to talk to someone about my faith, I'll do it. If you want me to to sacrifice in such a way, I'll do it. Lord, if you want me to endure some hardship for the glory of Christ, I'm willing to do it. May God direct my paths. Why can he say, may God? Because he's putting, notice, he says, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ. He knows he's entrusting himself to a great and good God. So you're not putting yourself into the capricious hands of another human being. You're putting your hands into a loving creator who says he wants nothing but the best for you. That he, has, uh, that he says that no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those whom he loves. And so if God's going to bring a trial into your life, it's okay, God, you're a good God and your love endures forever. If temptation and and difficulties are going to come into your life, it's okay, God, you're a good God and your love endures forever. If difficulty is going to be at your front door tomorrow, it's okay, God, because you're a loving God whose love endures forever. Paul says, I can trust him. Notice finally he says that he can direct our way to you. The statement there is a statement of peace and patience. What it means, Lord, is I'm in the waiting room right now. And instead of bellyaching, instead of griping, I'm going to trust. Knowing that your timing is best. Yeah, but you're enduring hardships, Paul. That's okay. God knows best. God knows best. How do you find satisfaction? By rejoicing in what God is doing in the lives of others. By relying on prayer. And let me just quickly close with this. By responding to the direction he gives. I'm not going to do any more teaching on, on this because Paul gives a thesis statement in this last part of the scripture. He says the following, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He gives a three-point outline of what he's going to do in chapters 4 and 5. And so I'm not going to blow chapters 4 and 5 here in one point, but I'm going to say this. What's God's will for your life? God's will is threefold. Number one, that you would love each other. That you would love each other. Paul says that your love would abound and increase. Who needs your love this morning? Who needs your love to abound and increase in their ways? Some of you need your love and, uh, to abound and increase with Jesus Christ. You've left your first love. Your love has, has grown cold. Abound in your love for Christ. Abound in your love for others. 
Paul's going to talk to them in, in the next chapter about what it means to be lovers of one another, brotherly love. Notice he wants us to let him grow you. Let him grow you. It says it is God who will establish our hearts blameless in holiness. He's going to do it. Paul told the Philippians, he who began a good work in you is faithful to see it to completion. Does that mean you've got no responsibility? Of course you do. But you can't do it on your own. And so let him with open arms say, God, grow me and make me more like your son. And finally, look to his coming. At the coming of our Lord with his saints. Why can we have satisfaction in this life even though it's filled with troubles and heartaches and pain? The answer is, listen to me, one day, and it could be today. Before the big game, Jesus could break through those clouds. And in that moment, Jesus will take us and Jesus will make us like him. And we will see him and we will know him as we are fully known. And in that moment, in that moment in time, there will be no more crying and no more pain, no more sorrow, no more affliction, no more distress. The old way of things will be gone and the new will come and will be there forever Because we will live and we will reside with Jesus and we will forever, all of eternity, praise the name of that God. And if we have that hope, if we have that trust, then as Peter says, the troubles that we face are but light and momentary in comparison to what God has for us. So let's pray to that end. You're looking for satisfaction? God is giving it. But he gives it in the way that amidst the hardships of struggle and pain, we can find contentment in him. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for your word and I thank you for the patience of your people as we've studied your word this morning. Lord, we want that joy. We want that satisfaction that counts it a blessing to suffer, that gives the prisoner the song, that can stare death in the face and see it as sweet victory. We want that kind of joy. And so, Lord, we look to you to give it. And so, Lord, I pray that our love would increase for others because of the love we've experienced from you. I pray, Lord, that, that uh, our heart for others would lead us to serve them and to honor them and to minister to them in the ways that you served and honored and cared for us. So, Lord, go before us in this week. We need your strength. Lord, I pray we would be people of prayer that would be uh, preparing our week by saturating each activity with prayer, praying for those we'll come in contact with, praying for those maybe we don't even know, Father, that we might honor you in our actions and in our deeds and our words as we engage with them. So now, Lord, send us forth from this place. We've heard your word. We've sang of your greatness. We have broken bread. And remember the sacrifice that you have done on our behalf. Send us forth now, Lord, changed. That we might encourage one another. That we may show love and affection to one another. That we may allow others to know that they can count on us in their trials and afflictions. To you be the glory for all of it. Now send us forth in peace and in fellowship, Lord, we ask. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.